Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. Smells can make you go somewhere in seconds, and that's the bit that I really love about putting food and wine together. Depending on the sophistication of your palate, wine can either tell an elaborate story of a warm, sunny climate, or it can say nothing at all. Some of us can pick up on the earthiness of one wine and the smokiness in another. But for some, wine is just wine, and it all tastes pretty much the same. It's true to say that most of us start out that way with very little appreciation for wine, perhaps more interested in it as an alcoholic drink than as a storyteller. And for that reason, it perfectly illustrates how easily we can overlook the depth that life has to offer and how sometimes it takes just a little effort to begin to appreciate something in a new way. I'm not being over the top here. You might think it's just wine, but the point is that nothing is just anything. Like Tim Harford told us a few episodes ago, it's important that we constantly cultivate curiosity in everything that we do. Helen McGinn is an award-winning wine expert seen on the BBC, ITV, in the Daily Mail and in various magazines. She's also the author of The Knackered Mother's Wine Guide and more recently the fiction novel This Changes Everything. And she's my guest today. Chapter 1. Made in the UK. Over the past few years, we've seen a boom in the number of wines made available to us, and also the rising quality of budget and supermarket wines. A bottle of £8 Asda Prosecco even won the top spot of the Independent's Best Proseccos list last year. Habits are changing, and we're beginning to realise that quality can be found everywhere. But it's fair to say that in the UK, we've always had an adventurous spirit when it comes to buying wine. We live in a country that, until fairly recently, hasn't produced a lot of our own. So we've all grown up drinking wine from everywhere else, but here, funnily enough. And obviously that's changing because now the English wine scene particularly, well, English and Welsh wine scenes are are really, really exciting. And we're making some brilliant wines here now. Uh, but it's a very, that's a very young industry, really. So we've always been quite adventurous here. But I think when you then get into the numbers, you know, the average price of a bottle of wine in this country is still only just over six quid. So we do love a bargain. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, people, wine reviewers like you, particularly on shows, whether it's on Saturday Kitchen or, or this morning, you have a you have a very nice tendency of breaking websites when you um, when you talk about a wine. I'll take you back to at some point last year. You recommended an English sparkling wine, just on the subject of English wines, and it was from Morrison's, and it was an absolute steal. And the website fell over pretty pretty quickly afterwards because I think people were watching the show and buying it. English sparkling wine in particular, do you think people who haven't tried it would be astonished by the quality of some of the stuff we produce here now? Definitely. You'd be absolutely amazed. And I have been in plenty of situations where I have tasted these wines uh, blind and I think they're champagne. I mean, they're that good. They are really, really good because we're, it's a cool climate here. 
I mean, as much as we complain about it, you know, not being very warm here, it's actually really good if you want to make sparkling wine because you need a cool climate to keep the acidity high in the grapes. And we've got similar soils to champagne. So we've got that precious chalk uh, and there's a lot of green sand here as well, which is working really well for creating sparkling wines. So, yeah, I think if you haven't tried, you would be amazed. It's not it's not what you might think if you're, if you're worried about it. <laughs> Am I right in thinking that some French houses, champagne houses, or indeed um, wineries have actually started to buy land in England because of what you say about the soil? Is that is that right? That's absolutely right. So Tassin just bought here, Pomery, some really big names have bought vineyards over here, in, particularly in the south. So Kent, Sussex, uh, because champagne is warming up as a region. And actually, they're, you know, they're, they're coming further north and looking for vineyards where we're still a little bit cooler here, which really suits it. So, yeah, I mean, the French have been quietly buying up vineyards here for a while. We can't currently go and visit wineries. We can't go to bars and restaurants. I, I'll hazard a guess based purely on my own buying behaviour, Helen. <laughs> have we been buying as domestic consumers in record levels, given the fact that we can't consume the product anywhere else it's a funny one because supermarkets have definitely sold more wine and beer and spirits over lockdown but our total consumption is actually down in the country you know when you think hospitality they've lost 90 percent of their business so they it's it was effectively wiped out in uh, over the last year so you know, supermarkets have sold more, but it's not like we've all been locked at home drinking more than we ever have. People are not seeing people to socialise, so we're not having the same occasions that we would normally have. I think wine is in total down around 5%, beer is down around 10%. So it's definitely changed the way that we drink as well. I think lockdown has made some people look at their, perhaps look at their relationship with alcohol and realise perhaps it was a little too close. But essentially, yeah, it's, I mean, it's going to take quite a long time for it to recover, obviously, after this. And the very sad fact is that a lot of wine companies will struggle to come back at all, uh, if, you know, particularly if their business depended on hospitality. On the other hand, what I have loved seeing over the last year is that the online wine scene, again, which had so much potential, but we were so used to going to a shop to buy our wine, that has really changed in the last year. And, you know, the good wine specialists and the independents who were quick to sort out their online wine offers and, you know, talk to their customers, I think they will end up keeping a lot of that custom you know people who started buying online for the first time will carry on buying wine online and that's really good to see that that's interesting because that there has you're right there has been a lot of love for small um independent brokers and, and sellers of wine I, I have a friend who runs his own company based down in brighton and i you know we buy from from him uh, and, I, and i wonder whether it's telling that as a thank you for the amount that we bought last year he sent us a couple of bottles of english fizz yeah, as, a, well, as, a, yeah. as a thank you so you know maybe the, not just the the wine you know wine tastings helen but also you know your appearance on, on on television that's that's all pivoted and that's all now done remotely what's 
that been like as a writer i've attended several read throughs of scripts that are zoom based which is quite strange How, how's it been running the, the wine club and indeed you know dialing in to the tv shows from from home well for a start every saturday morning i've still got my tracksuit bottoms on and nobody knows that's really that's that's the definite upside i mean it's been interesting i guess probably for me doing it from home it has it definitely has uh, a lot of pros to it before I would be going up to London the night before and you know I've got three kids at home so that has made life easier just doing it from home and I think because when it started it did feel a bit strange the first time but then you just got used to it I mean because we all moved you know into talking on Zoom and suddenly it just wasn't it wasn't weird and I and I have to say the crew the Saturday Kitchen team have been so brilliant at the way the screen is is at the table so it you know I'm I'm watching the show on my laptop because I'm just doing it via zoom and it's really funny because I often forget that I'm actually in the show because I'm just watching the program and then suddenly that what somebody will ask me a question I suddenly have this out of body experience and remember that I am actually on telly and I'm I need to talk about wine, but it it has yeah. So it's, I guess it, it sort of felt weird for a bit, but now it just feels it doesn't feel weird at all. I I love it. It's such an easy show to feel a part of. It's such a lovely. I mean, I really enjoy watching it <laughs> when I'm in it. <laughs> I, I I assume they send you the recipes for you to make at home in advance, so you can then choose the wines for the pairing. Is that is that right? Yeah. So I get the recipes usually on a Monday, and then I will cook the recipes and I will taste them with a range of different wines trying different styles because sometimes although I have an idea of what might work uh, it doesn't always work out that way sometimes it can be a real surprise so I'll always do the tasting at home and that's another part you know it's a whole part of the job that that I really enjoy doing we, I'd got into a bit of a a lockdown cooking rut so I think Saturday Kitchen I have a lot to thank it for otherwise we would all still be eating copious amounts of spaghetti bolognese in this house <laughs> <laughs> Chapter 2 The Perfect Pairing While most of us are unable to fly anywhere or perhaps even leave our local area we've been searching for other means of escapism and stories aren't the only vehicle for that We've said before on the show that objects aren't just props. They are storytellers that allow us to relive old memories and emotions. The same is true of food and drink, and their importance in literature shouldn't be underestimated or forgotten. I, for one, have been using the smells and tastes of different wines to travel vicariously to better times and sunnier places. It's at the intersection between food and wine that we can find the building blocks of fascinating narrative connections – just like good characters in a book, the right pairing can highlight the best parts of the other. A bad pairing is a disaster. It's about weaving two different narratives into something that fits. Yeah, I, th I mean, you're absolutely right. Sometimes it's when you put them together that you get the, you get the best out of them. And, you know, food can make some wines taste completely different and the other way around. So I think what, for me, what's always really interesting is when you get a really good pairing and you see somebody try it for the first time and th and they realize what what a success what a difference it makes when it's a successful pairing i mean so, you know there are times when 
I think it can sometimes feel like, you know, are you worrying too much about it? But I always think if you've gone to the trouble of cooking something really lovely, you want it to taste its best. So therefore put it with something that will help do that rather than anything that will sit over the flavours or hide the flavours. But you saying about, um, you know, travelling vicariously, that's so true because for me, wine has always had the ability to, you know, your sense of smell is so much more powerful than your sense of taste and smells can make you go somewhere in seconds and that's the bit that I really love about putting food and wine together. Particularly with wine tourism being or as was so popular and, and hopefully will be you know once again if I if, if I have a wine from a, a winery or a vineyard that I've visited that obviously takes me back to that trip or that that holiday um that we that we had which i think is is so powerful and and, and it may be some completely obscure winery that nobody's ever heard of or it could be a, a huge champagne house it, it doesn't really matter there's a a story it takes you back it, it links you to it just on what you said about about matching something just occurred to me when i first started drinking wine when i wasn't serving it in a bar or a, or a restaurant i used to think that a glass is a glass is a glass. It doesn't particularly matter. And and my own stemware purchases were probably guided by whatever the whatever the characters on Friends were using <laughs> at the time, because that's how we were influenced. And then about 15 years ago, I went to a wine tasting with a member of the Riedel family, and they asked us to pour the wines into different glasses. And I was astonished by how a wine could taste so different depending on the vessel that you use just give us a sense what what is it doing to the wine or is it simply that we are experiencing it I I don't really understand the science behind it how does it work so very simply what you're trying to do when you've got wine in a glass and you are trying to uh, assess it you know if I am doing it in a professional capacity the first thing you do is look at it Uh, then move the wine around in the glass and then you will smell it. Now, if you've got a glass that's quite thin, you know, quite narrow, you can't move the the wine around very easily. So therefore, it's not going to release its aromas. So it it sort of gets stuck in the glass. I use glasses that are, a, a traditional tasting glass is usually a tulip shape. That's the classic shape. And funny enough, my the glasses I often use at home, my favourite ones, are, um, they're, they're fairly big, but they are narrow, narrower at the top than they are at the bottom, so that there's lots of room to move the wine around. And that's when you get everything channeled up the glass. You can stick your nose in the top and it can't escape. It has to go up your nose. So you don't want the, you know, the top of the glass to be too wide. But having said all of that, there is something about associations that you have so for example a champagne coupe you know the ones that look like saucers uh, you know the great Gatsby-esque glasses they are possibly the worst glasses to drink champagne from because the shape of them means that the bubble there's a lot of you know surface to air so you, you lose the bubbles more quickly they're a nightmare to drink from you're forever you know goes down your front or but there is something about drinking fizz from one of those glasses that is lovely so I love drinking them from those glasses even though I know that from a you know from a wine tasting point of view they're hopeless (laughs) the the use of food and drink in 
I mean, you talked about the Great Great Gatsby, which is a, which is a brilliant example. I, I don't know whether you know um, the extent to which some writers focus in on food and drink. Patricia Cornwell has actually written two K. Scarpetta recipe books to accompany the fiction version of it. So important is food to that particular character. It, it's fascinating, and you know, you could you could pull out everything from the Royale with cheese sequence in yeah. um, Pulp Fiction. You know, people that, that drink to excess, you get a lot of addiction in crime fiction, for example. Um, literature is is kind of peppered, if you'll excuse the pun, with, with, these, with these references. When I, I, I listened to your novel, uh, the audio um, version of it, and without giving any spoilers away it's not a spoiler because it's pictured on the front cover to say that a large portion of the book is set in Rome you can't talk about Rome without talking about food and drink right and there is a there are healthy references to wine and drink in in the book how much of that was a discovery of of your own memories of the city because you can't go there and not experience the the culture and the food and and the drink that must have i i would imagine that was a joy to write that that must have i know writing is very hard and we'll talk about that but when it comes to things like that it's such a fundamental part of the novel that that really comes through you really get the sense that these characters are enjoying what oh, they're eating and drinking thank you well thank you that that's really lovely to hear and i that's what I hoped to do. I went to Rome on our honeymoon and then we went back there 10 years later with the kids for a few days just to take them there. I mean, of course, they were only interested in the ice cream. But um, for me, it is a city that it is not just all the sights and the history and just the incredible kind of splendour of the place. But it is how food and drink there is on every corner in every every time you turn you know down another street there is somewhere to eat or drink and that's what the locals are doing whether it's having their coffee standing up and slamming their cup back down on the saucer you know they don't even sit down they just go in have their shot exchange pleasantries because that's where they go every morning I loved all of that about Rome I really loved how food and wine was such an important part of life there that you you can't do Rome without it no, and in the same way that objects are not just props, food and drink, it's not just fuel. It's part of um it's part of life. As a writer, you were you were well known and and are well known for um newspaper articles and indeed the Knackered Mother um wine book. And and from a narrative perspective, there is a beautiful narrative in the phrase knackered mother. it doesn't invite further questioning, does it? It tells it tells a complete a complete story. Um, but the move from non-fiction to fiction for people who haven't done it, that's a big shift in writing ambition. It's a different skill, not without trepidation, I would guess. Yeah, you're right. I mean, writing when I started the blog. I'd started it to save my sanity <laughs> because I had three small kids. I had been a wine buyer for a supermarket for 10 years and I used to write all the wine, the copy on the back label. You know, I was used to writing, describing wine in a way that I hoped people would, it would make people want to pick up a bottle. And I really missed that part of the job. But coupled with the fact that my friends and family would always ring me on a Friday from the wine aisle in a panic, not knowing what to buy. So I thought, well, if I just put a couple of wines a week on a blog and then tell people it's there, 
And this was, you know, this was 10, 12 years ago, I think, now when I started it. Yes, it is about 12 years. And uh, it was just a way of writing about something I loved, uh, something that wasn't work. That was the other thing I was finding was at the time, you know, I was working part time for, for a wine company still. I was still very much in the wine world. But I was at the particular job I had at the time. There were a lot of spreadsheets going on for a while. And you know what it's like there's if there's always something more to do you'll always do it and I almost started the blog so that I wouldn't do that I would think right one evening a week and that's all I used to do was it used to take me an hour or so a week I will go and write about wine for an hour because I love doing that and if I if I discipline myself to do it that every week that was my challenge to myself and that's that, that's really how it started and it's carried on ever since but you, it's funny you say that about the name though because I have to say uh, one of the mums at the school gate once asked me, she said, oh, you've got a wine blog, haven't you? What's it called? So I told her. And the next day when I saw her, she said, what did you say it was called again? So I said, the Nag of Mothers Wine Club. And I said, why, Lynn, what did you Google? And she she said she'd Googled the Naked Mothers Wine Club. <laughs> I said, that's not me. <laughs> I bet that's a thing, though. <laughs> Well, I think but her words were, "You can't um." There are some things you can't unsee. So yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't advise googling that one. <laughs> I, I read that you'd been um, you've been in the process of of you know planning and writing the book for a number of years. And as I I, I read somewhere that you had you planned the plot line out. You basically walked the map of Rome in your mind, knowing where these characters were at any given point. Mm. One of the hardest things that writers find is to share their work. It's fine when it's just you. But as I've always said to writers, we can't edit a blank page. The first draft is never right. So don't waste time getting it wrong. For you as a writer, confronting that transition from Non-fiction, and just because something is non-fiction doesn't mean it cannot be literary. I believe that quite passionately. But fiction is a different beast. How did you feel when you first started to to write this stuff? Because there are no facts for you to fall back on. You know, you're not talking about the the, the wine or the vineyard. You're not simply retelling the story of the wine. You're telling your own story. This is completely different. Did that? Um, did that cause you a, a, any any sleepless nights? Um, oh my God, Mark! It was terrifying. It was utterly terrifying because, as you say, writing about something you know, writing facts is one thing. And what I'd always tried to do with the Knack of Mothers Wine Club, which then became the Knack of Mothers Wine Guide book, was write the facts, but in a in a way that you would learn without even realizing you were learning. It was like the horrible histories approach, but for wine. So I wrote, you know, a book that would hopefully engage you and then suddenly you're reading about wine and you've learned something whilst something else has made you laugh. I mean, it was a joy to write, but it was essentially stringing lots of facts together in a hopefully engaging way. And then moving to fiction, I remember the first time I opened the page and looked at it and I felt sick. I was like, this is, I mean this is a nightmare because <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I had the story in my head and I had scribbled lots of notes and I'd fleshed out characters in a notebook. I mean, it was all there, but actually then starting to commit it to paper uh, was 
yeah, that was a real moment of, right, just don't look down, just keep going. Chapter three, the edit. If you want to be a successful writer, it's not enough to just be good at writing. You have to have the bravery to face fear head on. The hobbyist approach will only get you so far. To make a career out of writing, you have to focus on the career aspect of it. You have to be willing to hand over your work to someone whose job it is to shape and reshape what you've written. It's uncomfortable at first. In fact, it's uncomfortable every single time. But without that feedback and the knowledge that an editor can impart, you may find yourself stuck. Moving from non-fiction to fiction is anxiety-inducing in itself, so having support has been vital for Helen. Yeah, I was really lucky with the first book that I did, the the wine one, the Knack of Mother's Wine Guide. That was found by an editor. Uh, She was with a big publishing house. She found the blog, emailed me out of the blue and said, I think this should be a book. And I met her and I'd never written, you know, I hadn't written a book before. I'd just been writing about wine. And she really showed me the importance of having a structure for a book, even though then it, w- it wasn't fiction. But, you, you know, you needed the structure and you needed it all to work. And she was brilliant at showing me where the gaps were, pushing me to go, you know, deeper in some areas, explain myself here, that sort of thing. So I think by the time I came to writing fiction, I had some experience. You know, I knew that I could do so much, but then I had to trust my editor. You know, she knows what she's doing. And the first time I got, when I got those first, you know, edit notes back from the first draft of This Changes Everything, it took me about an hour to pluck up the courage to open the email to read her notes because I I didn't know whether I was going to be reading five bullet points or five pages. I had no idea. And the initial thing is, you know, you look at somebody saying, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. And you sort of feel about 10 years old again and want to say, no, I don't. But you know that they're right. You know that they're absolutely right. And, you know, and, and she nailed everything. Every single point she made, I knew she was absolutely right. And like you say, you've you've got to put your trust that they know what they're doing and embrace it, which is what I did. And we're now working on the second fiction book at the moment. And I'm at that same stage again of about to go into, you know, editing the first draft. But I I know that that's part of the process. That's what you have to do. And you you'll only get to the good stuff if you go through that. Yes, and that, in a way, that is the process. That is the job, I think, of a of a writer. There's a presentation I give um, about the editing process of my first novel, and it really it shows a number of things. It shows the first draft of the first chapter as was written, and then it shows what was published, and then it shows a very brief video of me flicking through the pages of the agent's first set of notes. And in a 380-page novel, there is one single paragraph which just has um, it circled and it says, wonderful, everything else has got red pen all over it. And it's only because that process was followed that the book saw the light of that. You know, people say, how long did it take to write? And I say it took a year to write and four years to rewrite because the rewrite, that's the job of a writer. That is the process. Editors... And publishers 
get a bad rep, but that is invaluable to oh, you yeah. as a writer. Because do you know what? It's still got your name on it. As yeah. the author. So I was like, nobody has a monopoly on good ideas. Um, what was it like sending this out for the first time? And the reason I ask is because I've said to writers, you're not a writer unless you're writing for a reader. Now that reader can be your future self, but it has to be read by someone. But that's the point at which it turns into a very different proposition. You still, even now you're on your second novel, do you still feel some form of, oh my God, what are they gonna say about, about Oh this? yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And the first time I showed my agent who had done, she'd done, we'd done a couple of drinks books together. And then the time I told her that I had this draft of a novel in my drawer, because I hadn't told anyone I'd done it. Oh, I mean, my husband knew and, and a couple of friends knew, but only because I blurted it out sort of halfway through a bottle of rosé. And when I was talking to my agent about, you know, what's our next book going to be? Because the publisher's saying, what do, you, what, what do you want to do next? And I, I remember saying to my agent, I honestly haven't got another drinks book in me at the moment I really I'm I haven't got a burning desire to write I think I want to do something different and that's when I said to her actually I have got a sort of novel in my drawer at which point she said why didn't you tell me <laughs> you crazy fool so I gave her the draft and about two weeks later it was sent out she had sent it out to um some publishers and the very last meeting that we had before the first lockdown was with Boldwood who who then offered us a two book deal so it was yeah it was terrifying but what was lovely was when I gave it to her and, she, and my agent read it and you know even three chapters in she sent me a note saying actually this is really good and that that was wonderful. When I listened to it um if you think about this project theoretically, there are many reasons why it, it would be successful in terms of character arc, in terms of the story. But I think in terms of the way that you've written it, there is something, there's an element of pure escapism about the notion of somebody reuniting with their first love that they haven't seen in decades in a very romantic city that none of us can travel to. You know, there's something about the fact that you follow the journey of this woman and then her two daughters who try and chaperone her for the want of a better word around this, whoever this person could be that she's gone to, to meet people have really connected with this. So two questions I have for you. And what this, this first one I always ask writers this, what was it like when you first held it in your hands when which however many copies they sent you turned up, what was that like? And also what have you experienced from the reaction that people who've read this have had and how has that made you feel? So hold, opening that box and seeing the book in there for the first time was actually, I was completely speechless. I mean, I, I genuinely felt like I was having a dream. It really did feel, it was extraordinary. I, could, I couldn't believe it. And I felt, I felt I was so happy but also slightly thinking this isn't, I'm not sure this is happening. <laughs> you know, it was like that. It really was. The reaction from people 
I've been completely blown away by it. I really have. I I wrote something that I hoped would be a story that people could escape into. And it is, you know, it is a love story of sorts, but it's also messy in parts. And, you know, it looks at uh, the love between sisters, between mother and daughter, not just boy meets girl at all. It's so much, you know, it's so it's a I wanted it to to really explore just human relationships, family relationships. But ultimately I did want to write an uplifting story. And at one point I remember thinking, essentially, should it be a little should it because there are difficult bits in it, you know, is is it too neat? But actually it's what happens in between means it's fine for it to, to you know, it's fine for it to end like that. I, it was, the reaction I've had has been extraordinary. And of course, when I wrote it, I didn't know that we were going to be in this horrendous situation where nobody can go anywhere anyway. And the amount of people I've had emailing me and messaging me saying, this has allowed me to just escape for a bit in my head, you know, out of my four walls and go and sit in Rome and drink a Negroni. Well, that's amazing. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I, when you read reviews of your own work, I was given a piece of advice many years ago, which was good or bad, think about it for 24 hours and then let it go. Because (laughs) particularly the negative reviews, regular listeners of the show have heard me tell this before, but my favorite review of one of my books is it just says one star bought by mistake (laughs) (laughs) i mean that says everything right haters are going to hate right there's nothing that you can do um, without it i think going through this whole process makes anyone a better writer it makes you more um laser focused on on performing a critical analysis of your own work it makes you horrified when you go back and look at earlier drafts and go oh what was I thinking you know this is ridiculous taking those lessons now into book two so having been through the process has presumably helped you get your head around book two or is it the case that when you didn't know anything there was no fear whereas now you know what you know you can't possibly unknow it can you yeah it, yes I think you're right I think it's definitely the latter I think I now realized the first time I wrote fiction. I wasn't phased once I got going. I was just like, just keep writing, you know, just keep writing. With this one, I definitely had, which I didn't have with the first one, but with this one, I definitely felt the fear when you start and you feel the fear and you literally have to give yourself a talking to and say, come on, you've done this before. You you have the courage of your convictions and keep writing. This one has been, it's a, it's a bit more personal, the second one, which has definitely required me to dig deep. I mean, the the last one was that there were lots of that, I mean, is from some personal experience, because that's what you, that's what you know, isn't it? But yeah, I think it, it has definitely helped having done it before. But by the same token, you know what's to come. <laughs> you, you know, it's going to hurt. <laughs> You already know which bits the editor is not going to like. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, you know that you've got to go th- through that painful process to get it right. But that's all, all part of it, as you say. Well, the 
the newsletter is continuing to come out on a regular basis. This Changes Everything is out in shops and on, well, I guess not in shops at the moment, but certainly yeah. on online. We wish you all the best with sales and reviews of the first book and with the writing process for the second. Helen, again, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. Thank you. Conclusion. A massive thank you then to Helen McGinn for joining me on the podcast and to recap, what have we learnt? Food and drink can tell interesting and intricate stories. They are a constant throughout every moment of our lives, good and bad. They're incredibly significant culturally and have the ability to evoke memories and emotions like nothing else. Don't sideline food and drink when it comes to your writing. Going from writing non-fiction to fiction may be a daunting task. It may even make you feel a little sick. But there are so many similarities between the two. If you're making that leap, trust me when I say that once you get over the initial fear, you are by no means starting from scratch. Handing over control is one of the hardest parts of being a writer. Writing is a labour of love. So it's easy to put your barriers up when hearing criticism, even of the most constructive kind. But if you've left your work in the hands of an editor or a publisher, you have to trust that they know what they're doing. They only want to make your work as good as it can possibly be. And finally, Helen's now award-winning blog that she was doing for fun was picked up by a publisher out of the blue. When you commit to something you're passionate about and you truly love and enjoy the process, good things will come of it. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. And if you'd like to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine. New episodes are released weekly. Please like us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. Cheers.